computer. All right, so we begin the book of Judith, and um, this is not a book most people know or have read. Uh, I don't know that any of it occurs in the liturgy, at least certainly not at Sunday masses. Um, but it it is it is a very well known book, especially in the more in the ancient church. It was very highly regarded and um, um, used. Uh, we'll explain that in a moment. But that Judith uh, is a sort of an example or a type of the church of a, of a holy, strong, and brave woman who fights who fights for the faith um, and even shows down the men of her day. Hmm? So uh, the book is um, not in the Protestant Bibles, as you may recall. They eliminated seven books altogether and parts of three others. Uh, now, why did they do this? And we've had this discussion before, but it's always worth just a quick remembrance. Um, the, there, there were two different lists. The word canon doesn't, don't think of a canon that throws a ball, you know, I mean, it blows up, you know, and puts a ball. But think of a canon with one end, and it means list. So there were two ancient canons. Now, the one canon was called the Septuagint, um, 70 books. I'm sorry, it was translated by 70 elders, so it was called the Septuagint. But uh, th that had all the books that we're familiar with. So Judith would be there, uh, uh, Tobit, um, the Book of Wisdom, some of these books that are were eliminated later by the Protestants, the early, uh, the early church read. Now, Jesus would likely have read or known uh, the Bible that we call the Septuagint as well. Um, now, in, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and Judaism as we know it ended because they could no longer do the temple sacrifices. So the rabbis got together and they began to pull together their own list of uh, books um, that um, they regarded as sacred scripture. And these books did not include books like Judith. It, it wouldn't have adopted what's basically the Protestant list that, that is common today that, that does not have those books but you'll notice something <clears throat> that list came up after 70 some years after christ had established the church and the church had always been reading from the septuagint which included these missing books um and um jesus would have known it and probably uh you know that that list of books would have been most familiar to him so it's interesting that martin luther for many reasons of his own not just theological, uh, but some political and so on, chose to go with this shorter canon that eliminated certain Catholic books that emphasized things like the afterlife or purgatory or um, uh, other, other types of tradition and so on that uh, Luther and the reformers began to find obnoxious. Now, um, but it's interesting, isn't it, that they would have taken the, the decision of some rabbis meeting uh, somewhere around 90 AD, long after the establishment of the Christian church, uh, and take their list as superior to that which was used by the apostles themselves. So I would argue that uh, these are actually missing books in the Protestant tradition. They ought to be there. They're following the decision of Jewish rabbis who had no authority uh, over the Christians uh, and certainly could not over usurp or overthrow the authority of the apostles. Uh, now, uh, so that said, um, by the fourth century, when the church, you know, listed the, the modern Bible that we have today, all the books of the New Testament, as well as the old, they had the complete what we call Catholic Bible. Uh, so from the fourth century on, 
It was clearly all, all the, the Bible as we know today, its table of contents was firmly established. And only in the 16th century, the 1500s, in other words, um, 1500 years after the time of Jesus and the apostles, did the Protestant churches throw away seven books and parts of three others. Okay, enough said um, on that. But I will say also that uh, it's interesting that the first version of the King James Bible, which in the English-speaking world is the quintessential Protestant Bible, had all the books of the, the Old Testament that are now missing. So that when uh, that, that Bible was first published, it was published in England for the English people under the tutelage of King James. And they did not go along with Martin Luther and the reformers back on the continent. They had they, they continued with the traditional canon, but were pressured later to remove them. And only later. That's why you can have great oratorios by Handel and, um, and so on, like uh, Judas Maccabeus, which is one of his most popular uh, oratorios, namely uh, uh, an opera surrounding the story of the, of the Maccabees. Those two books, the first and second Maccabees, were later eliminated, but they were very popular among the, uh, the Christians in, in England uh, until such time as they were later eliminated. Uh, likewise, you have here, this book of Judith, uh, Handel and Vivaldi and others all had oratorios that, that sing out the book of Judith. Uh, I'll um, maybe give you a, well, I don't have it tonight, but I'll, I'll play you something. There's a really beautiful heroic music oratorios. And again, these things were, were done commonly uh, because people knew these books um, and loved them and were, this was part of their religious experience. Only later were these books removed from certain Protestant countries, uh, first in Germany and then, you know, Geneva and parts of France and so on. Uh, and then finally in England. All right, but the original Protestant English Bible, the King James Bible, did have the Book of Judith. So there is, you can actually find it, it's out there online, the King James Version of the Book of Judith. Okay, enough said. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds about that, but I would argue that those who would say that Judith is not a book of the Bible are engaged in a novelty, a less than 450 years old. Up until that time, up until about 450 years ago, nobody disputed whether Judith or Wisdom or First and Second Maccabees were books of the Bible. All right. Enough said. Um, there are some little ways I could distinguish that, but at the end, that's the basic lay of the land. Now, therefore, I, I just am arguing then for us, let's not get too lost in the idea that, well, that's not a book in my Bible. Well, <clears throat> Maybe your Bible's not complete. I mean, I just said the Catholic Bible is the same Bible we've always had going back. We didn't make those changes of the 16th century. Okay, now let's talk about, let's zero in then on the book of Judith. Now, um, let's begin with this woman called Judith. Um, we, the, the book of Judith has a lot of historical problems with it. It 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 it, uh, it 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 for example it, it identifies Nebuchadnezzar as the king of the Assyrians, which he wasn't. He was the king of the Babylonians. Um, it it brings in lots of battles and things that uh, from different parts of history and patches them in here. So in other words, battles that were separated by two, three, four hundred years. 
Likewise, uh, there are towns and cities and places that are mentioned that nobody knows where it is. So how do we deal then with the historical difficulties of a book like this? Likewise, Judith is nowhere else mentioned. So how do we handle these kinds of objections? Well, if the book of Judas is proposing to be an historical book about an historical event and an historical woman, then we probably do have a problem. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, I am an historical book citing to you historical facts that took place in a certain place in a certain time in a certain order. That's not what it does. It has more the quality of a kind of epic tale. Now, it doesn't begin this way, but, you know, when you go to see Star Wars, what is the thing, you know, the opening, the opening title screen? A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So the empire strikes you. What's the empire? Oh, it must be the Russians or the Soviets, or it must be, you know, it's, it's fictional. It's not meant to, it, it, it may draw from human themes and human historical themes. So at the time that Star Wars was made, there was this, what Ronald Reagan, at least at the time, called the evil empire, uh, the Soviet Union. But I mean, at the end of the day, that's not what the movie was about. It was about the epic kind of archetypal struggle between great empires of darkness and light and those who would, you know, fight, uh, you know, uh, and, and so on. And uh, so it contained epic themes, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that you, you wouldn't be able to find this galaxy far, far away. Uh, it's, 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 it's meant to signal you that this is not an historical account. It, it's a fictional account. It's sort of like um, told like history, but it's a fictional account. So if you look at Star Wars, Star Wars is talking about events that unfold uh, where there is a very evil empire that has invaded a certain part of a galaxy somewhere and is doing terrible things and, and, and robbing people of freedom and property and overtaking them. Um, and uh, it, this, as the story unfolds, there's a rebel force that arises to resist this power and so on. So it talks about <coughs> events and a story but it's not arguing that those events actually occurred just as they're written somewhere in some place. It's simply telling a story. So the name Judith, this is also a great hint. What does the name Judith mean? It literally means a Jewish woman. Uh, some older some other older commentaries would translate the name Judith as Jewish. You know, in other words, uh, a Jewish woman, right? Uh, I don't think today we normally use the word Jewish. Uh, that tends to have connotations that are more negative, like, you know, like the word Oriental. Are you an Oriental? You know, that's kind of considered a little offensive today, uh, um, even if it isn't meant that way. So we wouldn't say Jewish, but the word Judith means a Jewish woman. Okay. So we're already tipped off that this is not just some historical figure, um, but is a... a, a an allegory or is a uh, figure a little bit like, uh, did Job exist? Was he an historical figure? No. Oh, for sure, but probably not. He was probably, a long, long time ago, there was a man named Job. And bad things happened to Job. And, and, and it's a book about trying to figure out why do these bad things happen to people that are trying to keep God's will, all right? So it's a story about a man, whether he was a literal historical figure, or whether he it was just purely fictional or a little bit of both. How about Noah? Well, again, the story of Noah is told as like an epic tale, 
Um, on the other hand, Noah could have been an historical figure, but had some facts about him that were embellished. Just like our figures, you know, is everything we've ever heard about George Washington true? Did he really cut down the cherry tree? No. I cannot tell a lie. You know, is that a it, most historical people say there's no evidence for this story in any reputable biography. It's a kind of a tale told about George Washington. I'm going to gather that about mo almost half the quotes I have from Abraham Lincoln are attributed to him, but at no point are they actually in one of his written documents. So a lot of things are sometimes, Abraham Lincoln was once said, blah, 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 blah. Well, we don't, you know, maybe. So again, you get the idea. Sometimes a, a, a people from history were real people who lived, but some things that are said about them are embellished or there's stories added to it, or sometimes the story is simplified. So again, uh, just to say to you that we can get a little bit lost. If we try to demand that Judith be an historical book that should accurately re reflect the historical period, well, we're asking maybe something of it that it doesn't propose to be. You follow me? This is why context is very important. Um, but I think if we set aside the idea that it's trying to be an historical book that's talking about a very specific period and place and time, about very specific people who lived and did very specific things, then we are in trouble here because there's a lot of things that don't make sense. It draws from all kinds of crazy different periods of history. It misidentifies kings. And uh, it, it, it seems to misappropriate uh, different aspects of the geography. Um, but it's not, it, 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 in a way, it's signaling us I'm not intending to be an historical thing. I'm talking about, you know, again, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was once a great heroic woman named Judith. In other words, a Jewish woman who was strong in faith. And by God, she stood up against evil and she, she, she put her life on the line, you know? Uh, so this is a story about virtue. It's a story about strength. It's a story about power. It's a story about what we do and we have to confront evil. Uh, it's about all those things, and only in a very secondary sense, in some kind of a loose framework, do we sort of hang it up on different aspects of Jewish history, but not as as history, but just as kind of, well, I mean, think again about Star Wars. Um, most of the craziest um, uh, aliens in that movie, you go to the bar scene, okay, there's some pretty strange looking creatures in there, but almost every one of them have a head and some kind of appendage like hands, you know, that kind of stuff. So, it, it, you know, we're, we're, we have to sort of stay within a certain framework where we can relate to even foreign or alien creatures. We need some kind of a framework. Um, and um, so all of that's just a way of saying that there's certain battleships that look like what we expect a battleship to look like. There are certain um, things that maybe are fanciful, like the lightsaber, but at the end of the day, it's basically like a sword. So in other words, you have to have some historical and reality-based things to, to, hang, to hang fiction on. It can't just be completely made up stuff uh, that nobody's ever heard of before and you spend half your time explaining it, okay? So enough said on the historical aspect of this, all right? So I'm gonna basically adopt a position as we look at this book that it is, <clears throat> for us a great moral tale about what to do in the face of evil uh, what to do when we are, are, are experiencing injustice uh, what are we to do um, how are we to fight this um, and, and I would I'd say that my basic uh, 
Interpretive key is something that's largely been lost now in many modern spiritual works. Um, every ancient spiritual work up until about 1900 had a chapter that's missing in many of them now. And the chapter is spiritual warfare. Cunia um, spiritualis is the Latin. Every manual of, of spirituality had some chapter on engaging the battle. All of a sudden, people started to get, uh, and especially by the 1950s and beyond, oh, we can't have violent themes. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. And um, so, for example, uh, on the Protestant side, they had songs like Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching as to War, With the Cross of Jesus, Going on Before. Another song says, I'm on the battlefield for my Lord. I promised him that I would serve him till I die. Another song says, I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. And people are like, oh, fretting, this has to go away. We can't have this kind of stuff. Or again, on the Catholic side, again, the whole concept of the church militant. The idea that the church is at battle or at war. All this has been. So I wrote an article about hmm, 12 years ago. The article said, the title was, is the church um, a cruise ship or a battleship? Now, 90% of the people who read the article got the point. Um, but there was this 10% really vocal, I'm shocked, I'm outraged that you would compare the church to an instrument of war. You know, that kind of stuff. I'm like, come on, I'm not talking about real guns and uh, bullets and you know, steel and tanks and nuclear weapons. We're talking about the spiritual battle, though, uh, where the, the sword is the word of God and the, the helmet of salvation, the shield uh, of, of, the, of the truth, our gospel shod with the boots of peace, and our, our, I'm sorry, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. You know, th this is the warfare we engage, that we're in a battle. Uh, Re Revelation chapter 12, a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, then also a seven-headed dragon, with seven heads, ten horns, a red dragon that pursues her. This war, this battle that we're in, this great conflict against evil. So again, but oh, oh, oh it's terrible, terrible! How dare you, you know, use this image? And so again, we got into this kind of idea that spiritual warfare was somehow an antithetical to this Christian life, and that all we should do is just like you know, trust God and. You know, as if there was never a time to just get up and fight. So, for example, I guess First John, he never got the memo because he said, you know, in your battle against evil, you haven't resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. That's right. You know, <laughs> or, uh, you know, where we're told by St. Paul to take up the sword of uh, the spirit, you know, and so on. So these things, you know, some of these guys never got the memo either. But all that, all that said, I'm going to interpret this book largely as a book about spiritual warfare. All right, that we are engaged in it has a lot to teach us about courage, prudence, how we fight and when we fight, and uh, but being willing to fight and take up the battle, which again, I think too many Christians today have lost any sense of the battle, even though the world gets darker and more confused every day. Mm -hmm. All right, so now let's zero in a little bit more on Judas. I've given you kind of these overarching themes. Is it an historical book? Not, no. It, it, it may be like historical fiction, a story told about an historical figure, but it's just, it's really more of a novel. So maybe a book on Paul Revere, 
that has nothing to do with history, but it just sort of imagines Paul Revere and his family background and what made him made that ride. Or, you know, you get the idea, all right? So likely Judith is not an historical figure, or if she is, uh, she's simply someone whose tale was embellished. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to read to you <clears throat> a commentary that'll summarize the book for you. Um, you say, well, you're going to give it all away? But yeah, yeah. I don't want you to not... Uh, our, our goal here isn't to have you read like a, a new story you've never heard before uh, and keep the and keep the ending safe till the end. Let me just tell you the end of the story. Judas wins. Okay. I'll tell you the end of the Bible. Jesus wins. Okay, got it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but here's... I'm going to read some of this commentary I have in front of me, and I'll make some commentary as we go. Um, all right. So, <clears throat> Judith. She is called the savior of her city and people. Judith is the heroine of a great Jewish folk tale, the apocryphal book of Judah. She probably is a composite character created to embody both courage and patriotism and to serve as a role model for the people of her time and later generations. Most likely it was written by a Palestinian Jewish person in the second century. So in other words, this is not that long before Christ came. And it's, even though it was depicting a period three, 400 years in, the, in its own past, it was written probably around 200 BC, okay? About the time of the Maccabees and all that struggle. Um, this powerful table has survived uh, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, there is said to be an, uh, a version in Aramaic that Jerome said he had, um, but that we can't, that cannot be found at this time, all right? But uh, the work contains, okay, here comes the historical issues with it. The work contains serious chronological, historical, and geographical errors. <laughs> and, and it was once dismissed by some as, quote, an inconsequential fable. However, many scholars contend, uh, and, and many of the ancient fathers of the church contend, that this is an intentional device of the time to mark the book of fiction a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Okay. Um, the story is set in a time when the Jews had only recently returned from captivity. So what time period are we talking about? The Babylonian captivity occurred in 587 and was ended around five, uh, Five, uh, five, uh, 27, so 60 some years, they were in captivity in Babylon, all right? So we're looking at that. Remember when some of us studied together the book of um, Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls? Okay, that would be the time period when this book is said to take place, all right? Um, <clears throat> now, um, however, though, um, there is uh, the, the adversary, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was the ruler of Babylon, but he's called in this book the, the ruler of Assyria. Now, to some degree, one could argue, well, Nebuchadnezzar did for a time conquer parts of Assyria. But again, he's, he was never called anywhere in the Bible the ruler of Assyria. The conqueror, maybe. You get the idea. Anyway, so uh, again, um, there's an intentional warping of historical details here, many argue. To signal this is a book that's meant to transcend historical events and speak to the archetypal issues of good and uh, good and evil, right and wrong, war and peace, uh, faith and the struggle to keep faith, and, and so on. Okay, so all right. Now um, you can't make that big of a mistake and expect anybody to take the book seriously if it's a mistake. 
But it, and the book wouldn't have been that popular if it had big gross errors like that, uh, unless they understood, no, that, that's, that's a fiction, that's a mechanism to, to make the story wider than just this or that historical thing, okay? Uh, you and I could talk about the great conflict between communism and, uh, and, the, uh, and the West, but we might want to globalize it more. It's more than just communism uh, versus capitalism. It's, it's, you know, good versus evil. It's, you know, you get the idea. So, all right. Now, um, so, uh, so the, the, the period that just covered is probably around the, the, the you know, 520s uh, BC. All right. Now, when introduced in the story, which is only about halfway through the book, Judith is given ex an extensive genealogy, though most of the names are unidentifiable, you know? Um, and she is said to have lived in the town of Bethulia, located in a pass in the hill country of Judea, but nobody knows I've ever heard of this place a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. See the idea, right? Um, now, th that may be symbolic, or a pseudonym for the more well-known Sheshem. But I, I just contend it's probably just symbolic, you know? In the, remember, what was it, um, Rakanda? What's the, what's the, uh, the Black Panther? I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the movie? Wakanda. Uh, Wakanda, yeah. There's, where, where are you gonna find Wakanda? You know, it's, it's a, or uh, the land of Narnia. <laughs> That's right. Or Shangri-La. <laughs> Some of us who are older remember Shangri-La. Mm -hmm. It was a mythical place somewhere up in the in Nepal, <laughs> up in the way up in those high mountains. Okay. So again, the idea here being that look, uh, this, this is not trying to be a place that we should try to locate on a map. Got it? Okay. Now, um, as Judith ends the story in the midpoint of the text, Bethulia is enduring a month-long siege by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Angered that the people of Persia, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and Egypt had refused his call for assistance when he went to war against the Medes. By the way, who are the Medes? They, they're the Iranians um, today. The, uh, the Iranians are Persian, the Medo-Persians. Um, so, and Nebuchadnezzar would have been Iraqi, if you use modern terms, he would have been a, a Chaldean, or that is to say, a Babylonian, okay? So, so anyway, these countries had not assisted him and now he's angry okay and so he dispatches his army commander Holofernes on a punishing mission to the to these places the huge force was like a quote, swarm of locusts like the dust of the earth a multitude that could not be counted now we'll look at this more when we look at the opening lines of this book but there you see how these these terms are used which sound like they're just exaggerations but don't we sometimes feel overwhelmed in the face of evil? How can we overcome such a huge horde of, you know, lies and errors? And, you know, we feel easily overwhelmed, you see. And so this is part of spiritual warfare to not be overwhelmed by the forces arrayed. Um, so we'll look at that more in a moment when we start to read through the text. All right. <clears throat> so they're, they're arrayed on every side in this town, this region of the, of the hill country of Judea in some mountain pass in a place called Bethulia. Uh, and they're all overwhelmed and these hordes of armies are coming from, uh, the, uh, from Babylon and they're seeking to ruin and destroy, all right? They are marching forward and ravaging and raping and pillaging. 
every place through which they pass. It's like a war machine, like the, the Death Star in Star Wars, you see, okay? Blowing up whole plants on the way. Okay, now, continuing. When Holofernes, this is the, um, the commander of the army, approaches the lands of the Israelites, they are prepared to resist him. Uh, seeking intelligence, Holofernes was told by Achior and the Ammonites that he should bypass the Jews because they had not sinned against their God and would be too strong to destroy. Um, they would be unbeatable because, again, the God of the Jewish people was just too powerful to overcome unless his people disobey him, and then they can be defeated. Now, Holofernes discards this advice, but notice if this is an epic tale about virtue, are we not already then being told, look, look, O oh reader, you see that you're strong when you obey God. When you don't obey God, you're, you're, you're not strong and you can be easily overcome. You're a sitting duck for evil, a sitting duck for the devil and his forces or any other negative force that could just mow you down. <laughs> you know, so you see the idea, these epic tales are told not just are crafted just for a storyline, but they're meant to be uh, calls to virtue, okay? So, it says here, a proud Holofernes said to Achior, who is God except Nebuchadnezzar? I don't worry about their little God, he's a regional God. So, of course, he's gonna live to, he's gonna die actually to regret that. Um, so, um, he banished the outspoken Ammonite uh, and, uh, and um, uh, to Bethulia, where he was warmly received. Now, during the reconnaissance outside Bethulia, the, the, the commander of the, of the invading army, Holofernes, is advised to capture and control the water supply to the towns of that hill country, rather than make sacrifices of his warriors in an effort to, uh, to take the fortified towns. After 34 days of suffering, the cisterns and vessels of Bethulia were dry and the streets were filled with weak and helpless people who were hungry and thirsty. So the town leader Uzziah appealed to all the residents to wait five more days for God's mercy before surrendering. In the midst of this crisis, Judah steps forth and she emerges to rebuke the town elders for so testing God. Why wait five days? Just get yourself together and let's go get this guy. Yes, okay, that's what she said. Um, so, Judah's husband, Manasseh, had died about three years prior, and um, he had died um, and left Judith with, with much gold, silver, slaves, cattle, property, and an extensive estate that she was able to maintain. She was known for her beauty, and she was also respected for her devotion to God, and was thus heeded when she informed the elders of her plan to leave the city with her maid that night and says, the Lord will deliver Israel by my hand, she told them. Hmm. Now this theme that Israel is delivered by the hand of a woman, is it occurs over a dozen times, this line occurs in the book of Judah. Now, what's it there for? Well, at one level, it's there to say, a God can use anyone or anything. God doesn't need human strength, what we consider strong. We don't need a uh, five fifty thousand army, God could deliver us by the hand of a woman. Right? Now, it is also, though, uh, considered, um, you know, this, is, this would not square well with feminists today, talking like this. You know. 
But on the other hand, um, there is uh, there there was certainly a sense in this time that it's a little bit shameful to have to be delivered by the hand of a woman. One one time, God says, "I will so frighten you that the women among you will be brave." So again, there is um, this kind of almost a shaming of Israel. Look, if you aren't up for this battle, then God will deliver you. But through me, through the hand of a woman, the same kind of theme comes up with Joan of Arc. Um, if you read that, um, likewise, uh, not just Judith, uh, in the Bible, but, um, um, Deborah, uh, who also delivers them. She's one of the judges who delivers them. This theme also, um, uh, you know, comes up with, uh, why am I forgetting all of a sudden her name? One of the other great women of the Bible, um, Deborah, Judith, who killed, um, put a tent peg through. Anyway, well, I'll, I'll remember in a minute. I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Say again. I'm trying to think of names, Anne. If anyone hear that, I couldn't hear what it said. She said. Okay. Your your phone wasn't, is muffled. I can't hear. Wasn't Aliel? Hmm. Aliel? No, no. That's mm. weird. Okay, I'll, I'll, it'll pop in my head in a minute. All right, now, um, um, so we have here, um, uh, she goes out, she's going to go out and deliver them. Now, she fights, though, like a woman. She doesn't try to fight like a man. Now, this too, I, I think if you look at history, there's, a, there's an attitude today, uh, largely from feminism that says, you know, women were just oppressed, they were, they were, you know, treated badly, it was unjust, it was just terrible, women couldn't do anything, you know. That is so untrue if you read history, all right? Women have a lot of room to maneuver in any culture. They have to. Uh, let me just put it to you this way. Any man, I don't care how powerful he is, I don't care if he's the governor, the king, he knows that if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Women have their way. Now, for example, um, the real citadel of life isn't the palace or some government building it's the house the household where people live and mama almost always rules the roost and daddy if he's smart will largely yield to her he and his wife have to work stuff out but at the end of the day women had a lot of practical authority and so she's not going forth dressed in armor with a sword uh she'll use a sword but she's not going she's not going forth as a, a male warrior She's going forth as a woman and she's going to use her womenly traits. She's a beautiful woman. She's very sharp and she's shrewd. She knows how to manage her estate. She knows how to ingratiate herself to uh, benefactors and she gets herself into Holofernes circle and is able there to beguile him and dispatch him, behead him. Um, but she does this as a woman. And I just would argue we can say, oh, terrible, terrible, you know, this is just, you know, terrible thing we're saying about women there, Father, you're not being politically correct. But I wanted to say to you that um, part of the irony of feminism is that in a way it isn't feminism at all, it's masculinism, that a woman ought to be able to be like a man. That strikes me as a little bit odd. It seems to me that feminism would exalt female or feminine traits and say, these have value too. To be the mother of a household, to uh, be able to, um, you know, um, use charm and other things. Um, and, and, you know, uh, and that's just that practical daily authority in life. You know, I mean, you see what I'm saying? 
So it's, it's paradoxical. So the, in the Bible, you read about lots of strong women, but they're strong as women. They're not trying to just be a man. Okay. So there is this sort of shaming, though, of Israel. Okay, if you need to be saved by the hand of a woman, fine, God can do it. You remember the story of Gideon? I've told you many times before. Gideon had an army of 30,000 men to go up against an army of 60,000 coming at him. And God said, your army's too big. So I want you to tell the cowards to go home. So he gathered the troops and said, if you're not up to this battle, leave now. 20,000 men went home. The cowards left. 10,000 are left. Your army's still too big. Unless you think you got this, won this battle on your own. I will show you your army. Send them to the river. And some of the men drank the water, lapped it up like dogs. That's your army. 300 men, and I will be with you. To go up against 60,000 men. It is not by might that God, God uh, wins the day. All right? Um, so, again, part of this treatment, if you will, of spiritual warfare that, that this book talks about is it is not by human might, horses, you know, swords and clubs and sizes of armies that God wins the day. Uh, God is God. He doesn't depend on that stuff. Now, go ahead and mash your troops. But at the end of the day, God will win on his terms. Um, the, battle is, the battle is the Lord's. This battle is not yours, says the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. Another story from Second Chronicles. There, there, Jehoshaphat, there's three armies coming against him from three different nations. And Jerusalem is surrounded. And he's in the city, in the city gate now. And he's crying out and praying, and all the people are assembled, and they're going, oh, we're doomed, we're doomed. And finally, uh, a prophet, uh, Jehel, Jehaliel, steps up and says, you don't have to worry about this. This battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. And he will show you tomorrow morning what you are to do. So sleep tonight, assemble the people tomorrow, and God will tell you. So again, up that morning, after Joseph makes his big, long prayer, and God says, I want you to send out the army, but I want you to put the choir in front of them. So he said, they, they put a choir in front of the army. And they sang the great Hallel, the great praises of God. And this song of praise threw all those troops down in the valley into confusion. And they killed each other off. Not one man was left standing. Every one of them was dead. Nothing but corpses to collect. And all what, def, what won the day was a hymn, not a sword. Not an army, a song. See? So you see the idea. Um, when we come to spiritual warfare, this image of Judith going out with her handmaid and saying, I'm going to defeat this army. They're like, my God, you know, don't you need armor? I mean, uh, you know, or little David with the slingshot. I can't wear all this armor, you know? So again, with God and a slingshot, he won the day. Uh, they won the day with a hymn, a song. They they won the day with, uh, you know, as I say here now with Judith uh, uh, going out and so on. All right. So I'm trying to show you that as we study this book, I want you to be remind, remembering these kinds of themes, which we'll revisit, because it's going to say, look, it is not by might and strength. It is not by man's strength and the things that God prevails. All right. And uh that doesn't mean you should never have armies or a police force. It just means, look, at the end of the day, those things fail. You know, where are your five loaves and two fishes? Well, but what good are five loaves and two fishes for such a big crowd? Jesus says, bring them to me. And then I will. But he wants the five loaves and two fishes. But by gosh, at the end of the day, it's he who feeds that multitude. Right? You got it? Spiritual warfare is about, at its heart, about faith 
and trusting God that if you're on the right and you're in the right with God and you're proclaiming his truth, you will win. Maybe not today. You will win. The truth will out. All right. Let's go back to my little commentary that I'm reading from here. How does the story unfold? So, um, it says here, Judas, just before she left to go out to engage the armies, she returned home to remove her widow's garments, bathe and prepare herself to, quote, entice the eyes of all men who might see her. Terrible, sexist, we're gonna get to that in a minute. With her maid carrying wine and oil and food, Judas left Bethulia soon to encounter the Assyrian patrol. And she told them that she had a report for Holofernes. Won over by Judith's beauty, the enemy escorted the women to the woman, these two women to their camp. The arrival caused much excitement. Uh, you know, all those men there, and there's a woman in the camp, huh? And she's pretty. Uh, as she was ushered into Holofernes' tent, Judith pretended to honor Nebuchadnezzar. She told uh, the general, uh, Holofernes, uh, who represented Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that the people of Bethulia were about to sin by eating and drinking what was forbidden. She offered them to stay in the camp and pray every night and, uh, and uh, at the spring in the valley to learn, what the Jews, to learn when the Jews had sinned so they'd be vulnerable to conquest. So the Jews would then, in other words, she's saying basically I'm a, counter, I'm a counterinsurgent, I'm a counterspy, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you when the Jewish people are right for the picking, right? But she wants to be able to stay there in the inner camp, pray every night, and um, she would uh, then signal them when they should best be able to take this Jewish region called the hill country of Judea. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of these elements. She goes forth. What are some of her weapons? Her beauty. Her beauty. Um, uh, she knows how to flirt. And use her beauty to get access. Is this um, is this sexist? Uh, is this a terrible thing to say? But again, I would simply say to you, let's let's go back to kind of a Jewish mindset of um, uh, you know, about two three hundred years before Christ. Okay, here comes the issue. Um, the Jewish people at that time had a kind of an idea of something that today we tend to call the prosperity gospel. How does God bless you? Because they didn't have a developed concept of the afterlife. They had some sense that the, we would, God would come and judge and we'll hope to be on the right side when God comes, you know, but at the end of the day, it was all kind of vague to them. So how did God show you his love? How did God show you his blessings? By things like land, and property, uh, prosperity, um, large families and blessings of, 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 and so on. Um, the opposite was true too. If you were in bad, if you had, had misfortune, you must have sinned. Uh, so this guy is blind. That the, remember Jesus came across a man born blind and the apostles said, who sinned? This guy or his parents, he was born blind. So the idea is that God shows you his blessings through material uh, things like health and wealth and property and things also uh, uh so judith is a wealthy woman but you see in the jewish mindset it's not just saying well she's wealthy it's another it's also a way of saying she's virtuous now that may offend our thinking today because we know a lot of people who are wealthy who aren't virtuous and we also know people who are poor who are virtuous and everything in between 
So, uh, and even in Jesus' time, this was known, the book of Job was devoted to this question. How is it that a decent guy, who's certainly a cut above most people around him, suffers so much, you see? And in the end, God says, that's not for you to know. Not sure. It's none of your business. All right. So there are, I'm not saying that the Jewish people had this hook, line, and sinker, but there was a tendency to speak about blessings in material terms, but also to speak about virtue in that way. The virtuous man will, will grow wealthy and be able to hand his virtue, his wealth, the rewards of his work to his children and his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. Okay. The wicked man, however, will curse his family down to the seventh generation. Okay. So we start now with her, uh, Ju Judas's wealth. Now her beauty. Um, we have a concept even in, in, in the Christian tradition that goodness and beauty and truth go together. Um, the truth is beautiful. Um, sin is ugly. The truth is about order. Sin is about disorder. We're living in a country that's increasingly disordered, especially in our big cities. Lots of violence, lots of homelessness, chaos, the breakdown of law and order, and so on, you start to see. So this is a sign of evil, whereas order and goodness and, and beauty uh, and truth are all meant to go together, you see? So to speak of her beauty is once again another way of speaking about her virtue. Okay, I'm not saying we she's not beautiful at all. I'm just saying that, that this is not, they're not just thinking, Hey, baby, you got the curves, I got the angles, and it's about some sexual kind of, uh, you know, uh, attraction. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a beauty that is rooted in her virtue, and it's a sign of her virtue and her strength. But as a woman, she's going to fight as a woman. Now, she gets all dolled up, you notice, puts on her makeup, goes out there to engage the, the others. Now, does that remind you of another book that we read once, anyone? Anyone remind that someone who was told to get all dolled up to use her feminine mystique to win the day? The book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, remember? Naomi said, Sister girl, you're going to get yourself all gussied up and go out there and meet go, go ass. That's what you're going to do. Get yourself, put on your perfume, put on your makeup, get your hair, and, and go and, 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 and draw him in, you know? Now, this may offend some people today, but guess what? I mean, whatever virtues, whatever strengths, whatever you got, if you can use it for the good, go ahead, you know? Um, so again, we, uh, we're sort of uptight about a lot of stuff. And I just want you to at least get into the Jewish mindset. And speaking of her beauty and her wealth is not just speaking about her beauty and her wealth. It's a signal about her virtue, her strength, that God has blessed her. You got it? Okay. But Father, what about ugly women? Well, first of all, I don't know if there are ugly women. You know what I mean? Beauty is a very relative thing. You know? I mean, not every man finds every woman attractive, and there's a whole range, and same with women and men. Attraction is a complicated thing, so let's not even go there, okay? I mean, you know, some men prefer blondes, some brunettes, you know, blah, 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 blah. Some like men like women with little meat on their bones, and some like them thin. I don't know, for sure. You know what I'm saying? So don't don't reduce beauty to just one thing, just because the media and the, and the cosmopolitan magazine says this is what beauty is. Uh, beauty is a many splendid thing, but it's not wrong for a woman to use her beauty. Um, it's something God gave her. It's one of the weapons in her armor, so to speak. Okay, 
And uh, many a man has been taught to be reconsidering something because a beautiful woman is asking him, don't you think you ought to try something a little different there? Hmm? Okay, good enough. We're picking up the story now. I hope you're not getting too lost in all this. I'm trying to make commentary as I go. But again, I, I want you to see there's archetypal things that are mentioned here that'll be important for us as we start to read the text. <coughs> so <coughs> she's gone forth with her beauty, her wealth, her cunning, her ability. She knows how to negotiate. She's a sharp woman. She's got estates. She's, you know, and, and so on. So she's using all these tools at her disposal and she finagles her way right into Holofernes' inner circle. And she says, give me a few days here to pray and I'll signal you when the Jewish people have sinned against their God and uh, are weak to the point that you can just walk right on in and take them. Okay. So she's got an excuse to stay there, recon and look for an opportunity. See what's going on, right? Hey, this is a pretty woman. She's kind of, she says she's with us. Keep an eye on her, but uh, yeah, let her stay. Okay. Now, here we go. Pick up the story. Won over by Jewish Judith beauty, the enemy escorted the women to their camp. And the arrival was filled with much excitement. She was ushered into Holofernes' tent and pretended to honor him and, and his king, Nebuchadnezzar, and told the general that the people of Bethulia were about to sin by eating and drinking what was forbidden because they were, they were hungry and starving. She offered to stay in the camp to pray and to pray every night um, at a certain spring to learn when the Jews had sinned and would then convey this information. So for three days, Judith remained at the camp Establishing her nightly pattern, every night she'd go to the well and pray. On the fourth day, Holofernes sent his eunuch to invite her to a private party to, that was filled with food and wine and romance. Mm. See? All right. Knowing that she would now have the opportunity to fulfill her mission, Judith arrayed herself in all of her woman's finery. When the night grew late, the servants were being dismissed. Two, the two, namely her and Holofernes, the, uh, the commander of the army, were alone in the tent. But Holofernes was drunk and sprawled out on the bed in a stupor. <laughs> you big dummy, you know, you missed your... Okay, all right. Um, the wine won over the beauty. Okay, so um, uh, Judith then, with, with, with her maid waiting outside, Judith then reached for a sword that was by, nearby the commander and asked the Lord, give me strength this day, O God of Israel. Um, <clears throat> grabbing his hair, she chopped off Holofernes' head, rolled the body from the bed down into a, down the purple and gold canopy. Uh, she took down the, tore down the purple and gold canopy to take as proof of her action, and then gave the bloody head to her maid to be put inside of a bag. Uh, as customary, they left that evening for their evening prayer near the spring only to return to Bethulia instead of going back into the town, okay? So, uh, gathered then around the fire, the elders back in Bethulia uh, looked on as Judas displayed Holofernes' head <laughs> and the bed canopy and assured them that he, if she had not been defiled. Uh, Judas instructed them to hang the head on the town wall uh, for the Assyrian army to see and then send soldiers to the passes. Seeing the Jews boldly, I mean, seeing the Jews boldly approaching, the Assyrians went to wake up Holofernes, but found his decapitated body in a bloody turmoil. The army then fled in every direction, and the, the Israelites rushed to ravage the enemy's camp uh, to take their riches and wealth. And 
Meanwhile, Akior, um, seeing the power of Israel's God, was admitted to the faith, and so on. All right. During the 30 days of plundering that followed, the high priest Joachim came from Jerusalem to meet Judith. Uh, she was honored by all the women of Israel, given all the possessions of Holofernes. And after singing a hymn of thanksgiving, uh, she offered all these vessels and things to the Lord. Judith then returned to her place. She never remarried. She freed her maid and lived to the ripe old age of 105. And all Israel mourned her death as if for over a week. Okay. And everyone knew Tapati ever that. Okay. Now, you start to see again here, but try to see this as not just some interesting tale about a king who got killed by a beautiful woman. See this as a, um, as a story about spiritual warfare. Uh, are you and I that cunning in our battle against evil? Jesus, remember, told the parable of um, um, the, um, you know, um, how it, he, the, the, the wicked husbandman who uh, he was uh, stealing from his master and uh, he, um, the, um, you know, and, and, and so uh, he, the, the master finds out about it and tells him you're about to lose your position. So at any rate, we see that um, um, the, um, you know, the, 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 the upshot of the parable is that the master gives the guy cunning because he takes it to take your, your invoice and make it or honored, make it 50. I'm going to get friends for myself. When I'm kicked out, they'll be, they'll be owe me a few things and um, they will um, um, take me into their houses so I won't have to beg or, or uh, dig ditches. So, and, the, and, and so the Lord ends up praising this guy and he says, for the children of the darkness are more, uh, are more cunning in dealing with their own than are the children of light. So in our battle against evil, are we this cunning? Are we this careful? Are we, you know, who, uh, are, are we that crafty, you know, and uh, are we willing to make sacrifices and take risk to overcome evil? Huh? Or are we just going to hang out? Um, and darkness and hideout, shall I say, uh, that way. Um, so again, we, we see that this is a story about spiritual warfare, about taking risks to fight, to fight evil. It's a story about all these things, okay? Uh, it's a story about courage. It's a story about going out to meet the Lord um, and, um, and so on. So, all right. Now, um, before I go any further, any comments or questions? Uh, you have to also, you know, what do you call it, uh, unmute. Um, okay. All right. Now, um, having done that, let's, let's just sample. We're just going to, for maybe 10 minutes here, read the opening verses of chapter one. Now, remember, uh, Judith doesn't show up until the middle of the book. All right. So we're not going to see her today, um, but we are going to certainly encounter her uh, probably sometime next week. All right. With that in mind, if you have your Bible, uh, open up to chapter one of Judith. Now, where would Judith be? It's about midway through the Bible, right near the book of Psalms. Let's just here help you out, um, pulling out this version of the Bible. Um, yeah, it's, um, well, you see my Bible? It's about this far through the Old Testament. So about, about a third of the way through, you'll find the book of Judith, okay? 
Now, uh, because it has a lot of weird place names and things and names, I'll go ahead and uh, read it. On Monday night when I was working with the young adults, I, I had to have them read it because I was coughing a lot more than I am now. Thank God I'm coughing less. Okay. So I'm we're going to just spend a... Ask a question, please. Excuse <clears throat> me. Yes. In the beginning, you were saying uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, that was not her... Um, you said he wasn't a king or a husband or something. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonians. Okay. Although for some reason, this book assigns him to be the king of the Assyrians. And right, got it. that would only be indirectly true. Okay. Thank you. And Holofernes, who gets killed, is, is his commander, his army commander. Okay. So uh, old uh, Nebuchadnezzar's half back there having the slaves peel some grapes for him back in the temple, in the, in the palace. And Holofernes is out there running on the army. Okay. Okay. Judah, chapter one, verse one. <clears throat> It was uh, the twelfth year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over the Assyrians in the great city of Nineveh. At that time, um, Arphax was ruling over the Medes in Ectabana, and around Ectabana he built a, a wall of hewn stones, three cubits thick, six cubits long. He made the the wall seventy cubits high, fifty cubits wide, and at his gate he raised towers a hundred cubits high with foundations 60 cubits wide. He made his gate 70 cubits high, 40 cubits wide to allow the passage of his mighty forces with his infantry in formation. Okay, y'all, this is wildly extravagant and in a way intentionally exaggerating. It's hyperbole. I mean, look. let's look at some of these numbers. A cubit is, if you can sort of see my, from your elbow to the top of your middle finger, I'm exaggerating a little. I'll just call it a yard, like a yardstick. Think of about a yard, okay? Now, let's do some math here then. Um, it says here uh, that he built this huge city and these walls and these fortifications. It says here that the, um, uh, verse two, at Ectabana, he built a wall of hewn stones three cubits thick. So that's six feet thick wall, Okay. Most of the walls in our house are, our houses are, I don't know, the outside wall of this house is about 10 inches. But the um, inside walls are maybe, you know, eight inches, you know? So I just want you six feet thick, these walls are, okay? Way over the top, all right? Um, he made the walls 70 cubits high. So, uh, but anyone know how high our church ceiling is here? How many feet? It's 30 feet, okay? So this, this wall is, let's see, it says here, 70 cubits times three, 210 feet high, this wall is, okay? So think of our church, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking like uh, six or, I mean, uh, seven, seven, seven feet high, pretty tall, okay? Um, it says here that, um, uh, let's see, Verse, uh, verse three, all of its gates, he raised towers a hundred cubits high. That's 300 feet high. These towers are 300 feet in the air, okay? Uh, with foundations 60 cubits wide. The foundations of the towers are 90 feet wide, okay? So you, you start to see here, um, this is way over the top. Okay, this is the Death Star. This is this incredible killing machine. This 
army of indescribable power coming at them. This is like, wow, man, we're just like little midgets, little, little, you know, crickets. And they, they stand, these men stand 20, 30, 40, 130, 300 feet high, uh, powerful armies. We're going to get, we're just not, we're not just going to get killed. We're going to get, we're going to get shredded. Okay. So you see the idea. Uh, it's, it's told to us here in epic proportions. It's kind of like the Death Star. With, with, it just has a, a, just an unsurmountable power uh, to just wipe out whole planets. If you know your Star Wars, you know, the Death Star could just focus its rays and blow up an entire planet just like that. You know, you know 300 million, you know, three, 3 billion people dead, incinerated, just like that, you know? And you see that in Star Wars. It's just overwhelming force. Right now, Russia is invading uh, Ukraine. Russia is an enormous army compared to this little tiny country of Ukraine with just a tiny little army. And yet, how are they winning the day? By, by doing the things that a big army can't do. Little, little actions to despoil them and set them off. So you start to see, what do you do when you're confronted with that kind of an evil? You, know? you don't try to say, well, I got to get bigger. You're not. You're overwhelmed by it. So what do you do? You use what you do have and you try to strategically make use of it, right? Okay. But here we see in spiritual warfare, don't you experience that? I mean, how right now are any of us going to change this culture where people actually walk around talking and are believed and, and even promoted and applauded for saying that a man can have a baby? I mean, how do you confront that level of hypnosis? How are you going to overcome the culture, the music, the, the, uh, the whole plethora of just, you know, just feeling overwhelmed, you see? And, and so, again, this, we all have this experience in spiritual warfare that we feel completely outnumbered, completely overwhelmed. I'm, I'm in my early 60s, and some of you are older than I am. In fact, many of you, some of you might be a bit younger, but we've all been around long enough to remember this has happened really rapidly, too. Would you ever have dreamed back in the 60s or 70s that we come to a place like this where it is said that... Um, uh, Someone can just become a woman because he says so. I mean, how did we get it? So we're overwhelmed. It's happened rapidly. We feel completely outnumbered. Um, they seem to have locked in the media, and these kids are mesmerized on their little TikTok things, and they're lost. And, and so, you feel that way? Okay. So that's what I want you to see. Don't just overlook these details, like some military description, blah blah blah. Right? Okay. And so, remember David going up against Goliath, right? How's he going to win? By putting on big armor? Taking on an extra long sword? I can't wield this. It's, no, he's going to use what he does have, his skills. It's like Luke Skywalker, who learned how to fly in narrow canyons uh, as a kid. And now he's just going to use his own... He's not going to worry about the stupid radar that's telling him all this stuff. It's just distracting me. I'm going to just bottle the, let the force be with him. And he flies and he hits that Death Star and blows it up. Okay, but you see the idea. This is in the nature of spiritual warfare. We often do feel overwhelmed. But the point is, am I alone? Am I overwhelmed? Oh, alone, yes. But with God, now I've got a dog in the fight. Okay, we read on. Verse 7. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Assyrians, contacted all the inhabitants of Persia. That's to say the Iranians. And all who lived in the west, and the inhabitants of Cilicia and Damascus, 
Lebanon, anti-Lebanon, and all those who lived along the seacoast. In other words, the Holy Land, what we call today the land of Israel, okay? The peoples of Carmel, Gilead, Upper Galilee, the vast plain of Esdralon, <clears throat> and all in Samaria. All this is what we call the Holy Land today, okay? He contacted them um, um, uh, for, as far as Jordan and as far as Jerusalem, Bethany, Shelus, Kadesh, the river of Egypt, Tapanes, Ramesses. That's all the way down into Egypt now. Uh, Tanis, Memphis, and beyond. All the inhabitants of Egypt as far as the borders of Ethiopia. Now, let me just stop there and say, those, those borders that I just read to you, you know what they sound like? The borders of the, of, of, of the Garden of Eden. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, it talks about four rivers that border the, the, uh, the Garden of Eden. The, the Tigris and the Euphrates way out there in, uh, in Babylon, uh, Syria, and uh, in Iran. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers are still there today. Up north to Lebanon, the land of Havala, uh, the land of Havala, <laughs> that's up there. And the, and, the, and the Garden of Eden extended all the way down to the Horn of Africa, to Ethiopia, including the modern day Egypt. So the, the original Garden of Eden was pretty big. Isn't it interesting? Now you'll notice, though, that the same borders are almost used to describe a horrific war zone. <laughs> we'll go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. What happened to Eden? Thorns and thistles sprung up. Um, there is no longer, it's no longer paradise. Now they're in paradise lost. So this world that God promised us, if we would love him and trust him and stay in close union with him, has now become a war zone. Jesus said, I mean, Jesus, God the Father had said to them, if you eat of that tree of the fruit, it will surely become, you know, death and, death and, um, um, Suffering and death will become your lot. So, you know, in other words, this is, this this epic tale is showing us that this is not just any battle. This is the battle. We are living in paradise lost. We are living in a fallen world. We are governed by a fallen angel, and we have fallen natures. Okay, so are you praying with me? I'm trying to show you that this book isn't just about some historical battle at some point and some point. This is about the epic battle where we are now in paradise lost all right and we can feel very overwhelmed now the word goes out to all these regions that nebuchadnezzar wants them to join him in a battle but the inhabitants of all the land made light of the summons of nebuchadnezzar he made light of the king of the assyrians and they would not join him in the war they were not afraid of him since he was only a single opponent so they sent back his envoys empty-handed and disgraced. Nebuchadnezzar then fell into a violent rage against the land and swore by his throne and his kingdom that he would take revenge on the territories of Cilicia, Damascus, Syria, destroy with a sword all the inhabitants of Moab and Amnon, of Judea and those living in Egypt, as far as the seacoast. Now, here too, this is not just... Um, historical thing. This is the battle. What happens to you if you don't cooperate with the world? By God, you know, we're all going to agree that a man can be a woman. By God, we're all going to agree that. It, and if you don't, you're, you're engaged in hate speech and we can have you arrested. You know that up in England, I mean in England, up in uh, Canada right now, there are, I, I, I know of about a dozen people who are now in jail because they mispronounced somebody. They're awaiting trial. 
They didn't even get bail because the language police said you have assaulted or upset somebody by not using the pronouns. You, you looked at a man and you called him a man. You thought he was a man, but he's not. He claims to be a woman and you have to pretend he is. And if not, you're going to be arrested. Right now in, in, in a number of countries, like the Netherlands and places, if a priest gets up in the pulpit and say homosexual acts are wrong, he can be arrested for hate speech. For simply quoting the Bible or quoting the catechism of the Catholic Church. Likewise, again, we start to see uh, in our culture, there's a lot of heavy-handed stuff that says you will comply. You will, you will not only not object, you, you will, when we tell you to celebrate, put on the rainbow or whatever, you will do this, or you will come to work because this is whatever gay pride or this is whatever pride day, and by God, you are going to celebrate, and if you don't, well, you're, not, you're, you're, you're offending against diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you are going to suffer. You might be fired. We may not be able to fire you outright, but we'll find a reason to eliminate your job. You're not going to go on. You're not going to get away. So in other words, you reject the invitation of the world to join it in a battle that's evil. It's not going to say, oh, well, too bad. I guess you don't want to join me. It's coming after you. Okay? So I'm trying to show you texts like these aren't just something in a galaxy far, far away. They're also about what we're encountering in different ways and levels now. Okay? Now, continuing on, uh, well, we'll just spend five more minutes and then we'll be done. Um, the defeat of, uh, so in the 17th year, he then mustered forces, that is to say Nebuchadnezzar, against King Arphaxad and uh, against the uh, and was victorious in his campaign. He routed the whole force of Arphaxad and the entire cal cavalry uh, of chariots. He took possession of those cities of, uh, on, uh, and pressed on to Ekstabana and took its towers and sacked its marketplaces and turned its glory into shame and captured him in the mountains of Ragu and, and uh, ran him through with spears, utterly destroying him once for all. Then he returned to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, with all of its consolidated forces and a very great multitude of warriors. And there he relaxed and feasted for 120 days. But he's not done yet. Okay? That's the only part of the people who refused to join him in the battle. Now he's kind of, he'll next be turning his sights on the, what we call today, the Holy Land. Okay. So what are some themes then in, 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 in spiritual warfare? Again, very often we can feel overwhelmed. Incredible, a war machine is coming against us. How can we resist? Um, how, how will this happen? You know, uh, how will we win the day with so little resources? Um, Likewise, uh, we can also see that um, uh, we may be invited by the world. I'll tell you what, you don't need to fight us. Just join us and, you know, we'll give you rewards. And, um, but join us in the battle. And you say, well, no, I, I, I can't do that. Uh, what you're asking of me is evil or wrong or sinful. Oh, oh, okay. They don't just go away and say, well, okay, I guess you just don't agree with our little agenda. You know, you're, you're not just uninformed. You're not just... Um, you know, backward, you're dangerous because you're shaking up our little agenda and we think you hate us and uh, we can't endure that. And we're going to have to come after you, penalize you, criminalize you, and eventually remove you entirely. Now, this is, this happened in various levels in various different places all down through history about this issue or that issue. And there's a lot of pressure to conform 
to worldly things. Right now, there's a great moral struggle in this land, but there have been other times where, again, we we may have, let's say the nation went to war to greedily take a land that really didn't belong to us, and you were to stand up against that. You could be arrested, you know, in times for lack of patriotism, or remember how all the Japanese were rounded up in World War II. I mean, these things go on. And um, if you're not conformed and reciting the right formulas at, at certain times, uh, everything can turn on you and you can lose everything. So that's another theme then of spiritual warfare. You've got to decide to choose sides. And choosing God's side makes you ultimately the winner, but not right away. You might lose everything. You might lose land and property, and you might even eventually lose your own life like the martyrs did. But you will win the victory ultimately, but it's going to involve some suffering and some uh, consequences for not just going along. Okay, so we set some stages here for what we would call spiritual warfare here in the book of Judith. Any comments or questions as we end? I hope you'll find this book helpful. I, it's, it's obscure. Most people have never read it or heard about it even, um, but here it is. And it's got, I think, a lot to teach us in what we have to, sometimes we have to stand up and be counted as a disciple of the Lord. And um, you know that old bumper sticker, if, if being Christian were against the law, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Mm -hmm. Right, Liz? You know, sometimes, Monsignor, I think it's easier to just live within your your sphere of reference, your of influence, yeah. and not take a universal view of um, the spiritual realm and the um, the actual life that you're living. Mm. Um, and, and if you, um, when I say you, I'm talking about my, uh, you know, the universal you and and myself. Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking to any person, you know, on the Zoom necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, once I, once I accepted who I was in Christ Jesus, I couldn't deny the spiritual realm any longer. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had to uh, accept that that's more real than mm -hmm. the physical universe. And that uh, we fight against principalities uh, mm -hmm. and, and that whole diaspora uh, more than we fight against the uh, this world mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And if we if we don't acknowledge that that is what's influencing everything around us and causing all the the negativity in our world. Mm -hmm. And uh, do what we can to um, fight against that and to help others to understand that so that they can save their own souls. Mm -hmm. um, then then we're not doing what we we've been um, commissioned to do by our baptisms. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we're not uh, following the way of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, it's. It's all laid out in the book that he left us. It's all laid out in our communion with him, uh, even with those who don't uh, necessarily um, you, you yeah. know, know him personally, because we are made in the image and likeness of him. But there's no doubt right. 
Once you get to know him, there's no doubt. Yeah, just to quote Jesus himself, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I called you out of it, the world will hate you. Uh, He says, in this world, you shall have tribulation, but have confidence. I've overcome the world. So again, um, are you worthy of Jesus Christ? Are you just worthy of what the state tells you to say or the, the, the business tells you to do, you know? those are the and these are tough questions you know i mean i say they're tough in the sense that i think the answer is simple but to we you know it's one thing for me to say well you you can't you can't cooperate in evil but when you're at work and you're i don't know let's say you're a pharmacist and you're asked to dispense abortion pills you know uh well if you don't cooperate you may lose your job your family's depending on your work and and so on it's not a it's not a just okay i can just kind of sit here and disagree uh, we're going to often have to pay a heavy price, you know, and um, as, as I say, we, we don't talk like this a lot in the church today. And I, I've told my brother, priest, you know, as you, most of you know, I go around the country, um, even the world, like out in the Virgin Islands, I'm going to Germany in uh, next Jan- the coming January. I, I, I speak to priests everywhere and I say, you know, fathers, we have not prepared people for martyrdom and we ourselves are not willing to be martyrs for the truth. We're just not. And we have to change the way we speak. The early church suffered greatly. And we just, we turned religion into a kind of a therapeutic thing. We turned it into kind of a comfort thing. But it, it has those aspects, but it also has these aspects that requires at times great sacrifice from us. And we haven't spoken like this in decades. And we hardly ever speak of this uh, even now. And it's going to get more and more pointed the conflict. And as, as I said, that's why spiritual warfare should be put back into every spiritual manual. Many of the newest ones have put it back. Books like Judith and so on that speak to us of spiritual warfare are important for us to kind of probe the depths of this. Okay, good. Uh, frankly, Monsignor, I think this book is kind of exciting, yeah. especially with, if, if um, we, we really get into, you know, looking at it as symbolically, you know, what it's really uh, happening here. Mm-hmm. And if people kind of you know, get into the symbols that you're trying to teach us, mm-hmm. we'll have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Next week, I'll play you some music as well, by the way, from Judith Triumphing, uh, the, 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 some of the oratorios. Just give you some samples. All right, Debbie Jackson, you have your hand up. Um, yes, I was wondering in every that you were saying in terms of one picking the right kind of armor to take up a a battle if you will I was wondering if part of the hesitancy in doing that creates a doubt and if I do this am I really going to follow God's word am I really going to be doing what's expected of me but oh wait this is not the direction that I think I'll be accepted and I will be able to make the kind of impression or get the kind of results that I'm, that Mm -hmm. I think I'm supposed to be getting. And that doubt comes from a lack of confidence Mm -hmm. in what your end result and what you are supposed to try to do in order to get the kind of result that you're after. So doubt comes, I think, comes into play. And then 
is that coming from, you know, the devil, Satan trying to put that extra battle into the whole scheme of things? Well, Debbie, I would say that it, it can come from Satan, sure. But there's a there's a, a much more present and local issue at stake. And that is that many people lack courage today because people like me, who should be leaders and leading a battle, are, are, are also weak and scared and don't, don't want conflict and have never thought of, of martyrdom as in is really in their wheelhouse. Uh, so we that's why I work a lot with priests these days, trying to say to them, you know, we've just got to stand in the pulpit and be clear with God's people, teach them, help them to become clearer and certain. And from that comes the courage. Because I think a lot of a lot of the lack of courage does come from uncertainty. Well, is this really what the church teaches? You know, you know that kind of a thing. And sometimes, you know, even when you do stand up and, and say, you'll get even bishops and certain priests and some who say, no, 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 stop all that. And you're like, why? I mean, I thought we were supposed to engage this battle and fight for the faith and fight for people's souls. Well, but people might get upset. We might get sued. You know, there's a lot of this goes on in the church. And I think I, I, before we go and say, blame the devil, I'm going to just say we've connived in an awful lot of uh, stuff. And, um, you know, St. Paul says, if, if, if the trumpeter sounds an uncertain call, who will muster for battle? And I don't think that most Catholics today get a certain enough call and they get enough claptrap out in the media by the Father James Martins and others of this world where who sow confusion and doubt and wonderment. Um, and he's a priest and, you know, and then some of us who should be speaking out against him aren't uh, and so on. And so I think we need to look to the leadership of the church, priests and deacons and bishops, yes, but also parents. But we, and that's why I tried in our last series to sort of equip you all with biblical references for some of these moral topics. Because I don't want you to be uncertain or unclear. And the more certain and clear you get, that equips you, I think, for greater courage to go forth with confidence. And I am doing God's work here. I'm preaching his word. And I'm telling people that, uh, that such and so an idea is an error based on God's word, not just my opinion or my eloquence. It's a long, it's a long, uh, it's a long transition we're going to have to make, but we're going into a time now where the the world, we kept thinking maybe the world would love us if we just sort of toned down a little and kind of went along to go go along and, um, and they they don't they just disrespect us even more. There's just nothing much. There's no real respect anymore for the Bible, the God's word, for God's church. They know we're divided. They know we're sheep. They know we're scared. So at some point, it's going to take a, a remnant, going back to this idea earlier on in our night, our conference tonight, that it's going to take a remnant. Namely, God is not going to win this by making a huge, massive conversion of all the bishops and all the clergy and all God's people. It's going to be little stormtroopers like this. Two days ago, we had the Feast of St. Athanasius, who almost single-handedly drew the church back from a terrible heresy that denied the divinity of Christ. He almost did it single-handedly. Maybe St. Nicholas and a few others joined him, but it took one guy, two or three guys, to go up against the whole world, and they won because God was with them. And this is what it's going to take. It's not going to be, like I said, through some huge army. Uh, Judith doesn't win this pretending to be a man, or trying to behave like a man, or trying to pretend that she has an army. She doesn't do any of that. She uses her own gifts, and God and God is with her, and she 
undoes Holofernes and sends their armies into panic. So again, this is the way these things are going to be won, not just by the conventional. We need to raise up an army of priests who are training. Okay, that's fine. But biggie wow projects like that seldom work or have effect. It's going to take God reaching certain, there comes a day like in the middle, middle ages when the church was in great darkness and all of a sudden this weird guy named Francis of Assisi started walking around saying weird stuff. And St. Catherine of Siena and St. Dominic and through these little sort of unique, you know, they're big, they're big saints on the calendar now, but they were nobodies. They were nobodies. They had no money. They had no power. Um, the, the Dominicans and the Franciscans were mendicant orders. They were beggars. They had no place to live. They, they had to beg for food every day. So you get the idea. They're big. They loom large in our mind now, but they weren't. And God took just these individuals and just changed the world. And that's going to, so pray for that today. But also, you know, make sure you're on the right side, <laughs> on the right team. But again, I think to answer Debbie, I'll, I'll just re say one more thing, you know, just reiterate namely that I think part of the lack of courage is because people like me, priests who should be leading God's faithful, uh, to be a force to be reckoned with are, are ourselves very compromised, and very sheepish, and... Um, it, it, it doesn't help when the leadership is out to lunch. It's like uh, Peter, James, and John asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the epic battle's about to unfold, the three main leaders of the church are sound asleep. And things have not changed, my friends. I think but that goes God to um, it being you, the word is within you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, just allow the, the Lord to convict you with you know that, that power of that word, Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, God will will God will out, but He's going to probably do a lot of it in spite of us. And frankly, I'm sad to say, you know, Biggie Wild Church projects and the clergy aren't going to be. It's going to be folks like you, maybe an occasional clergyman here and there, but it's going to be small little heroes who just, you know, they win the day, and they'll come out of nowhere. Okay, that's the, that's the history anyway. Okay, so. Like Judith. Who's Judith? I don't know. That rich woman lives on the hill. Yeah. Ever met her? No. She just shows up one day and says, I'm going to go take care of this. Oh, crazy. You know, where's your army? I got my ways. And God was with her. Okay. Let's pray. Someone want to pray us out? Oh, I'm looking for Robin to pray us out. How about that? Yes. I was about to say, come on, Robin. Yeah, Robin. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Most gracious, loving Father, thank you for this time that you've allowed us to be not only in your presence, but in the presence of your word, learning, hearing, seeing, tasting, feeling, smelling. Mm. Thank you for everything that you have provided for us to do so. It be your will that we see each other again, pick up where we left off, and also be ready to learn even more and have that desire uh, even bigger for when we meet again for what you have for us, for it was received. And we thank you for your shepherd, for allowing the healing upon him and may it continue. May his innards continue to heal. May he continue to heal so that he can continue being used by you being um, an example of you as he continues to 
uh, bless you as you continue to bless him to bless us. So we thank you for the word. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for truth. Lord, we ask that uh, you watch over us as we lay to rest tonight and it be your will. We wake in the morning. We know that mercy that you have our name on it. We will receive it and you will give us all that we need to receive it and to equip us with what we need for that day for sufficient uh, for sufficient is your love for us each and every day that you grant us. And for those that weren't able to be with us this day, dear Lord, I uh, put a special blessing upon them and ask that you watch over them and bless them as they rest through the night or wherever they may be. And uh, for just being so grateful for being the God that you are. Thank you for the goodness that we were able to receive today throughout this day. I lift and pray those that have recently passed, uh, those that have lost loved ones, those that are uh, taking care of those who are sick, who are in hospitals or, or hospices or, or healthcare centers, dear Lord. Thank you for uh, granting us the, the support. Thank you for the strength that you put behind our weakness, for you are that strength in our weakness. And we thank you for that, dear Lord. Heavenly Father, if there's nothing else that could be said, and I could say so much, I do want to say thank you. Thank you so much for this evening. And again, dear Lord, may we never cease to praise you, to glorify you, to thank you for all that you continue to do for us. We thank you for everything that you continue to give us. I ask that you put a blessing upon our families, upon our homes, upon our children, our community, our faith families, uh, those near and far. Thank you, dear Lord, for what you are doing, but more so for what you are about to do. Mm. And for those that the uh, prayer request that was not verbalized, and I just want to reiterate what Miss uh, Liz said also, you hear silence so loud, dear Lord, <laughs> and may the prayers, may the requests that are lying silent in our hearts be deeply heard by you, for you know our hearts. You know everything about us from our prayer requests to the ones that we're saying to the ones that we're not. So we trust to know that you have those well-equipped and that you will answer them according to your will, your grace, and your mercy. So again, dear Lord, as we lay to rest tonight, may we honor you even in our sleep and we wake in the morning, it be your will. May we glorify your name again and receive the mercy that you have for us with our name on it. This prayer and every prayer, I praise to you and lift to you, Heavenly Father, through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right. Blessings all. We'll see you. Talk to you next week. All right. Yes, Lord. I'm so grateful to have you back, Monsignor. Yes. <laughs> and I, I think George is working, so I oh. know that prayer touched him. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Sorry, I missed you. Bye. 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 Sorry, I missed you at church Sunday. Yeah, we were disappointed. Liz. I'm always working. Bye-bye, <laughs> bye, Judy. I'm glad to see your face. Take care. Have a blessed night, everybody. Can somebody wake Craig up? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good night, All right. everybody. Bye-bye.